Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to episode 107 of Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart. I'm many things really. I'm a dad, I'm a musician, I'm a oogie sticky filmmaker and mostly I'm a podcaster all, and that's what we're doing here. All these things and more and joining us tonight, he is the writer and director of The Velocipaster. We are thrilled to be joined by Mr. Brendan Steer. Brendan, good evening. Good evening, guys. How are you? Uh, do you want kids? I, I love kids. Kids are great, you know? Like, I'm just so stoked to be here talking about kids and how much we all want them. That That's what this podcast is about, right? Presumably that's why you've chosen the film you've chosen, yeah. Um, oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I got... Guys, I can tell you, I, I have a son. Now, I, I was present for his birth, so I'm fairly confident he's not a 33-year-old man. <laughs> It could have been Switch Man. Like, I- I'm just saying, uh, weirder things have happened as we discovered an orphan. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> Brenda, you have chosen Orphan for this evening yes. from 2009, which we'll get to in a sec. And we never normally do this, but when we first spoke about you coming on the show and which film you wanted to choose, you did go for some other things that um, <laughs> I had to kind of negotiate you away from. <laughs> and I, and the, cho- the choices were so out there that I think that they just met at a very brief mention. Mitch, yep. before you get going too far into these, remember, you do open yourself up to tweet after tweet of, oh, why didn't you do that? And why didn't you do that? Yeah, this is very true. If the will of the people is enough, then we may have to have you back and do one of these films. I would absolutely do that um, because they're two of my favorite films. I'm not even joking. Like, I feel like people think I'm being ironic when I say that, but I have seen both of the films multiple times like five or six times a piece uh, do you do you want me to mention what they were first off there was speed racer yes <laughs> it's a fucking mm-hmm. classic dude <laughs> the wachowski speed racer totally underrated that movie's nuts i love it honestly i've seen it do things visually that i've genuinely never seen another movie do it's like one of the most visually exciting films i've ever seen and, and i'm not even joking like the movie's not great but but just visually it's like it's astounding you feel like there are more colors than you've ever seen before and <laughs> and i love it speed racer gives me an incredible headache yes yeah that that's a that happens sometimes too um, I, I remember um, when you spoke about it and I looked at the trailer because I haven't seen it. I watched the trailer and I was like, if you were asking me to guess a runtime for this, I would not have said 135 minutes. Yup. No, it is a punishing runtime. I'll give you that. <laughs> it is very true. It's about uh, 45 minutes too long. But man, are they like the most visually splendid 45 minutes, guys. <laughs> um, and possibly more controversial still, your first pick, and you evidenced your commitment to this pick by sending me an actual picture of you holding the Blu-ray in your hand. Uh, Fifty Shades Darker. It's the best movie ever. So really quick, really quick aside, uh, and I mean this, I saw all three Fifty Shades movies in theaters opening day. They all opened on Valentine's Day. 
And I had never read the books, not nothing like, like, I'm not reading the fucking books. But one of my best friends happened to be up when the first movie came out. And I took him and, you know, my girlfriend at the time tagged along. But really, it was about me and my friend going to see sure, Fifty sure. Shades on Valentine's Day together. Mm-hmm. And then when the second one, it's okay. The first Fifty Shades is not great. It's honestly kind of boring. But <laughs> when the second one came out, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. Like, let's go for this. Let's see the second one on opening day, too. What else are we doing on Valentine's Day? So we go. And honestly, Fifty Shades Darker is one of my favorite movies. I immediately bought the Blu-ray because basically I I could literally talk about this movie for hours. I'll condense it down to this. Basically, all you need to know is this. The first Fifty Shades movie, you know, they're adapting smut. They're adapting fan fiction that was published. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's not good. It's terrible. But they really were trying. They got a very talented director in Anna Taylor-Joy. No, wait, Anna Taylor-Johnson. And um, the other one's the actress, right? Uh, And, like, she's a very good director, and she's a very smart woman. And she really tried to make it a good movie. And it fails spectacularly because there's only so much you can do. It's, like, a terrible story that goes nowhere. It It is two hours of two people who are constantly having sex debating a non-disclosure agreement. That is what the movie's about. And it doesn't even matter because, like, they even set it up to be like, we won't have sex till we sign. But they do immediately anyway. The movie sucks. But I just want to just want to say, <laughs> Sam Taylor Johnson directed the first film. Sam Taylor Johnson. Thank you so much. Yes, that is her name. She's a wonderful director and a very talented person. And uh, and she made a bad movie because she had a bad screenplay. And so the woman who wrote Fifty Shades did not get along with Sam Taylor Johnson and she got her fired. And they replaced Sam with an idiot <laughs> who directed Body Heat. And he has no idea how bad this movie is. And he just fucking goes for it. Like, like it, it, it's incredible because all of a sudden you realize that what the movie was missing is an idiot at the helm. And, and then all of the parts click because it becomes like this incredible comedy. There, there's a scene in Fifty Shades Darker where Christian Grey goes down in a fucking helicopter. Like, you see like a CGI like, boom! The the thing blows up. And he was driving it because of course he can fly a helicopter. Cuts to Anna, his fiance, our main character, looking at the television and it's like this news report that's like, millionaire Christian Grey lost, like we don't know where his body is, like his helicopter's found. Anna's, Anna's of course beside herself, she's crying, where could Christian be? He walks in the door and he's got one scratch on him and he just goes, Anna, I walk from Washington (laughs) I walked here (laughs) and like in the time it has taken her to sit down and look at this breaking news Christian Grey kicked out the fucking like window of the helicopter crawled through the goddamn woods and got to his wife and the whole movie is operating at that fever pitch of insanity and it's it's unlike anything else I've ever seen and I adore that film the third one's not that great but it's also pretty good because that same guy directed it anyway (laughs) that's really I do adore the second Fifty Shades and yeah I hope we get to talk about it at some point I just hope that if any listeners out there are equally um inspired by the work that was done uh they can tweet at me so and we we can watch 50 shades together we've just started a patreon and that sounds like premium content to me <laughs> hell yeah dude <laughs> i would i would 100 percent. yes i would 
So, um, <laughs> I, so I, I did ask if you could go for something a little bit more genre on the condition yes. that, um, or with the proviso, that um, we would give you a platform to talk about Speed Racer and Fifty Shades Darker, which we've done. <laughs> yes, um, and I appreciate it. Thank you. And um, uh, you have gone for Orphan from 2009. A hell of a choice, if you don't mind me saying so. Why this one, apart from because you couldn't do Speed Racer or Fifty Shades Darker? Yes. <laughs> well, you know, it's my third favorite. No. <laughs> um, no. Uh, well, the funny thing, I, I another great choice for the show would have been I was actually a fan of Jean Collette Serra's first movie uh, House of Wax which I yes. also think is actually kind of overlooked it's a fun good movie and mm, um, one of the best cinema going experiences of my life uh, yeah. was in uh, House of Wax yes I, I completely believe that the movie's a fucking blast and I feel like it was like really unfairly overlooked and I happened to see it at release and I really liked it and so when his second film came out when Orphan came out I wanted to see it and I liked it even more. And I just felt like the whole world shat on it. And I was like, no, dude, Orphan's good. It's really good. <laughs> but I had only seen it once. And um, honestly, with this opportunity, I just remembered that impression. Sort of being like, I, I remembered liking it. I had not seen it probably in since it came out. And um, okay. I was very pleasantly surprised, to be honest. I was like a little worried that I would I would pick this film and get on this podcast and be like, guys, I'm sorry, Orphan does suck. But, <laughs> but I was wrong. This movie rips, dude. I, I loved it. Andy, you have seen this a few times, if I'm not mistaken, but not for a while. I have. I've not seen it for a long time. I saw it in the cinema. I think you talked about it on the show. And after that, I went and I rewatched it. So it's probably been... I'd say it's been well over a year. That time, maybe a year ago, was only the second time I've seen it. I watched it. Yeah, I watched it as kind of just one of the things that I just watched one week and talked about on here. Um, and I remembered liking it. And I remembered being quite impressed by how hard it goes down this extremely sinister road yep. and how long it leaves you hanging before it kind of cycles back and tells you exactly what it's doing. And I tried to watch it this time as though I was watching it for the first time and thinking about how uncomfortable some of this made me feel. <laughs> yup. I, I, I think that's definitely why it got, you know, not a great reception because it does in fact mm. go hard. This is a movie that in no uncertain terms asks you to root for the death of a child and like that that's a tough <laughs> sell it doesn't even tell you until way after you've started processing those feelings like uh what, what is actually happening and by that time it's also like she's already trying to jump on Sarsgard, so it's like you know it's a cruel movie and I like that about it. It's a nasty piece of work, this one, I think. But in a way that kind of never stops being fun. But we'll get to that moment and what happens around it soon mm -hmm. enough. Brendan, I don't know if you've listened to the show before, but we do make everybody that comes on do one thing. Uh, and it's for the benefit of anyone who is uh, listening to the show having not seen the film. What we do is Andy puts 30 seconds on the clock. I count you in and okay. we will ask you to give your best 30 second synopsis of Orphan. How do you feel? Um, I am very ready. Wait, wait, sorry. Real quick question. Am I summarizing the whole film or am I pitching it? You know what? We've had people do, we've had people do both. I would say follow your heart on that one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I can do that. Because we I will spoil the living daylights. Out oh, hell later. yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can get all the way through it. Don't get too bogged down in the first 10 pages of the script. <laughs> you, you got it. <laughs> that, 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 okay. That's legitimate. So many people trip up with that. Okay. Are you ready? Uh -huh. Yes. Okay. Three, two, one. Go. Orphan is a movie about a woman named Kate who's having marriage trouble. She lost a child a little while ago, and she's really thinking about adopting. Her and her husband have not had sex in a while. Things are not going well. They adopt a beautiful child who turns out to be a 33-year-old woman, wants to fuck the husband, and tries to kill them all. 
that's basically it right like, like that's essentially the film it's a very potted synopsis but it is pretty much what you're getting can't argue with that that was quality work there yeah um we learned a lot about karen oh yeah um who i think oh my god have i done this again have you written her name as karen the whole way through well done oh also a flyer (laughs) if i've done that i'm gonna be um write kate on your arm oh my god i've written karen every single time oh no (laughs) that is absolute poison although at least at least i've abbreviated it to k for most of the time right just stop me if i say it that's a fucking nightmare you know you can you can call her k as if you're buds I mean, I think I think we we really do get to spend a lot of time with Kate and and really get to know every aspect of her life. Honestly, mm-hmm. it's fucking classic, Karen. Um, so yeah, I want to talk about the start of this because I think that for one thing, this is a, it's a super super nasty opening um, because you're basically mm. witnessing what is framed as being a kind of flashback to a stillbirth, but is obviously a nightmare and also a flashback. So I think this is really cool, especially on first watch, because what you think that what you're watching is just this kind of like very graphic piece of reality. And the way that it distorts into this very overt nightmare is Mm -hmm. such a blindside on first watch, I think. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I have a very strong memory of seeing this for the first time. And um, when Vera Farmiga started bleeding under the wheelchair, I legitimately was like, oh, shit. Like, this movie might be good. Because <laughs> like, that image of them tracking over them is, like, really rough. So a couple of things are really interesting about this opening to me. It presupposes, first and foremost, that you're about to watch a two-hour horror movie about a woman who is a mother of two and pretty deep in her, like, 30s and uh, is is had a stillbirth. Yep. Like, that. Mm-hmm. that's the setup. And that's, like, such a strange setup for to begin a horror movie with. Like, this is certainly not a group of teens runs into the woods. It's like, I, I remembered being kind of struck by how, um I, I know it's a very strange thing to say, but how kind of mature that was, that they were like, yeah, this is a film about adults, and these yeah. are adult problems and fears. Yeah, it roots what becomes this kind of, like, very eccentric and very overtly strange story in a very real kind of trauma and very yeah. kind of family drama which i think is interesting i also think and we might as well talk about it now i think that like as kate and john we've got vera farmiga and peter sarsgaard who are both great in basically everything but i think both doing really good work here yeah i agree yeah agreed what i will say though is peter is a fucking no well, john rather is a fucking <laughs> idiot oh god yeah john get it together my guy trust your wife like eight percent my guy <laughs> like <laughs> he's the worst dude he's a cheater first and foremost mm-hmm. <laughs> i feel like there's a trope and it's a trope i leaned into in my first movie uh, animosity where it's the shitty husband who is sort of like honey you're just being you're just not really like you you gotta calm down and it's like that dude sucks if you are dating that dude fucking dump him because <laughs> they're at some point in your life you're gonna d- adopt a child dude it's gonna happen <laughs> and, and you will realize that you chose wrong too late i think and you'll turn over and there's goddamn sars guard and you're like what have i done how did i get here <laughs> i will say i think they're both excellent in the movie genuinely i, I think they give Agreed. really good performances yeah. especially vera she really commits like mm. it's she's good in this film i think that both of them had a real kind of like not that there wasn't credibility before but i think that there's a kind of real gravitas to the fact that they're the kind of headliners in this mm-hmm. mm. yeah i yeah. completely agree 
we learn quite a lot about uh, Kate in quite quick succession here. See her kind of describing stuff to a therapist, and we learn that she's a recovering alcoholic, and also that they are looking to adopt a child. And very quickly after that, we also meet the kids, 12-year-old son Daniel and deaf-mute MVP Max. Yes, dude. Max rules. I want, if I ever have kids, I want a Max. That that girl was cool as hell. And like, how cute and, and touching was it to see her and like Vera Farmiga have that scene in, in her bedroom? where she's like reading the story to her. It was like a really beautiful little scene in the middle of this movie that's about to take a hard turn towards pedophilia. (laughs) And like, like, yeah, no, I I thought that that little girl did a wonderful job. Also, what I will say about that character of Max is she is the most put upon character in this film. I have written multiple times, like I feel terrible for this little girl. Yes, yeah, hard agree. Um, she sees multiple murders. Yes, she sure does. I know that there is a sequel of sorts or kind of a prequel in the works to this, which we'll get to. But I think that if there was going to be something else on the timeline for this, then what I would like would be like a 20-year chronology hop to see how she turned out. Whoa. Spoiler, she's fucked up. <laughs> yeah. But uh, honestly, I'd write that movie. Just this girl that's like I, I trying to explain it to people. Like, how do you even begin? Like, when I was a kid, there was a another kid who is actually a 33-year-old woman and trying desperately to fuck my dad. <laughs> and she <laughs> she got me involved in a couple murders. Anyway, how are you? <laughs> um, when you said when I was a kid there, I thought you were about to introduce like an anecdote from your own life. And then when you said me too. Uh, <laughs> I went to school, there was a kid who was a 33-year-old woman. I was like, oh, right. <laughs> yeah, um, well, you know, I did choose this film because it has a lot of similarities with my own past. Uh, mm. That's what I've <laughs> sort of been trying to tell you guys. But... <laughs> yeah, I think we should talk about this now. I think that um, they have obviously been very upfront with Max. Max, who's a fairly young child, they've been very upfront with her about the fact that she was supposed to have a sister who's not around. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think it's a really cool technique here where they do that thing where you see it from Max's perspective and obviously she's deaf, so you get this this like white noise that blends with the score. Yeah, I, I really liked that as well. What, what I really liked about what they did with Max and what they did with her position in the entire family is that it sort of, like we said before in this really lurid story, this like really honestly grindhousey exploitation plot, they have like this very grounded and, and gentle portrayal of what it would be like to be like the parent of a deaf child where it's like you see Mm -hmm. how how far along the different members of the family are with the sign language her brother is kind of like too good for it and like her mom's really trying and like it's really interesting i i I liked how they handled that that actress is actually partially deaf oh wow she has cochlear implants so very much acting some of the stuff she's had to deal with presumably like some of the the challenges yeah. that she faces day to day, except for the stuff about the 33-year-old killer dwarf. Well, I mean, we don't really know where she came from, so maybe that was in her past, I'm too. I'm presuming Maybe this film is cast exclusively by people who have had run-ins with 33-year-old killers. Um, well, masquerading I, I as mean, here's the thing, guys. I, of course, as you can hear, am from the States, and mm. this happens all the time. All the time. You try and adopt a child, and it, and the child is just so cute, and she's like, Mother, father, I am so happy to come home. And, and then, you know, before you turn around, there you are. When I was reading about this um, earlier on, I was talking about the controversy when it came out, and the line on the Wikipedia page says something to the effect of, uh, this film, which contains an antagonist that is a murderous adoptee, caused some anger amongst adoption agencies. It's like, I'll bet it did. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Adoption agencies, foster groups. Got heaps of complaints as well for playing on the kind of killer dwarf trope. I, I sort of get that. <laughs> yeah. Like, the rest of them, I'm like, I mean, come on. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. If there's one of those criticisms that I think stands up to examination, I think it's probably that one, to be fair. Yeah, I completely agree. It's a distasteful twist, but it's also a horror movie. So it's yeah. sort of like, I, I, I don't know. I go back and forth with that shit in horror. Because I feel like horror in particular is a genre where you're supposed to kind of uh, explore those taboo subjects. And you're supposed to kind of bring up, you know, you can do in a horror movie what you can't talk about in other genres. Because it's more permissible like that. But mm. I am the child of two special education teachers. So I am very aware of, <laughs> of the stigma against people with developmental disabilities, people with physical disabilities. I watched this with my parents. And let me tell you, <laughs> my dad had some choice words at the end. Even though he actually liked oh, it. Man. He was like, it was good. But let me tell you. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. I, I, I also... I don't know. I, I'm not sure I would make a movie with this plot. Do you know I what? Know. Saying that though, do you know what else is weird about this film? It's produced by Leonardo DiCaprio. What? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my god. Wait, that is weirder. Ah, oh, wow. Yeah. I did not look at those credits very hard. Leo, what's happening, man? <laughs> he, <laughs> he looked at it. was like 10 years before The Revenant, and he's like, this one, this one will get me that Oscar. <laughs> he read the first 10 pages, and he's like, this is a beautiful story about a mother that loses her child. <laughs> and then goes to the premiere, and he's like, what the fuck? He goes to the premiere, and he loves it. He's like, yeah. it's even better than I thought. I knew it was going this way, but... <laughs> That's wild. I did not realize that. Ship to Cinema is under the title Infant Terror. <laughs> All right. Really? Yeah, yeah, which I find, which tickles me. Yeah, I'm in for that one. We are at this point off to the orphanage and they are off to go and meet the kids and kind of see if there's anyone that they gel with. We do meet <laughs> Esther here, played by Isabel Furman. Probably a reasonable juncture to talk about her performance in this. I think that she does really pretty good work across the board here, to be honest. It's a pretty effective first meeting with her because they are won over both by her folksy charm and harrowing backstory. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's very uh, accurate. Oh, well, and she can paint, bro. You've seen those. Oh, wow. That's so impressive. I love her paintings. Little Esther. I love her paintings. Yeah. And she's got the cute little accent. Look at this little angel. What could go wrong? <laughs> I thought it was a bit off color for John to be making orphan jokes when he got out the car. Yeah. I mean, honestly, par for the course for that fuck up. But <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> it was a, he, he steps out of the car. What he's referring to is he steps out of the car, sees a snowman and immediately goes snorfin. <laughs> <laughs> Which, yeah. all right, like, look, I made a movie called Velocipaster. I get it. <laughs> I would see the snowman, take out my phone, and very quietly type Snorfin into my <laughs> phone and then not tell my wife. Like, Jesus, dude. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like, like, look, I like a portmanteau as much as the next guy, but there's a time and a place. Yes. John, get it together. Going back to what you were saying, though, Mitch, I do think that Isabel Furman is excellent in this. Uh, I think she gives an incredibly strong, committed performance in a film that actually asks quite a lot of a young actress. Yeah, no, I completely agree. She was 12 when they filmed this. 11 or 12. Yeah. I looked it up. And it's like, I, I think that she's doing really fucking pretty damn good work mm -hmm. um, for being that young, especially. But yeah, no, she, she hits both sides of it perfectly. Like, she's a very pretty girl, you know? It's like she does look angelic. Mm -hmm. And she hits the sweetness so well. And she's so good at doing that thing with her eyes where she like switches it into now I'm evil Esther. And yeah, no, I thought she did an astoundingly good job, especially for being so young. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't know going in. I was going to ask that how old she was when uh, when they did it. Yeah, God, that's really impressive. Born in 97, and this came out in... Um, 2009, was it? Yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. So she must have been 11 or 12 when they were filming. Wow. It's wild. A quick whip round of some other characters and family members here. We meet Grandma Barbara. Sucks. Yeah. <laughs> well and god like like she's standing there with kate in her in her in her kitchen and she's just like good thing you're not drinking again crazy how you almost murdered your child it's like fuck you mom well come on <laughs> <laughs> you really should have gone to aa it's like jesus dude <laughs> she's doing her best kate is doing her best kate was strong enough to stop drinking cold yeah. turkey on her own that yeah. can't be easy give her the plaudits that she deserves for being able to do that that's tough uh, it is i i've done it i'll be real with you guys this is i know this is a jokey podcast but i used to have a i used to be an alcoholic and i quit okay. cold turkey I'm i'm um 11 months sober holy shit <laughs> but it was like well done yeah. congratulations yeah Thank you so much. But yeah, no, it was it it is funny because it made me really appreciate how wonderful and supportive the people in my life have been because this bitch sucks <laughs> like <laughs> grandma's the worst dude and even later on when she's like i know your mother told you to wait there but like you have a dollar it's like fuck you grandma <laughs> like ugh. cch pounder i like though cch pounder's always great hard yeah. great. uh sister abigail CCH founder, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when when they're taking Esther home, so we meet Grandma Barbara, and we also meet Daniel, the twelve-year-old son of uh, the family, who uh, is less stoked about the arrival of Esther, mm. and kind of immediately starts to feel like she's a little bit of an attention sponge because in the next scene he uh, gets pissed off because John doesn't appreciate his guitar hero skills. I'm surprised you just skipped over the three-week chronology hop. Turns out pretty <laughs> quick to get your hands on an orphan. I didn't fact check it. Is that accurate? Like, how long does it take to adopt a child? I actually don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm not sure either. What I will say is three weeks feels fast. It sure does. But, you know, once again, speaking as the resident American, I mean, we play things fast and loose over here, man. <laughs> We're like, take the kid, dude. Take it. What, what do you want? Come on. No, it was, <laughs> it was very bizarre, honestly. <laughs> We're also living in a culture of convenience. You don't really want to have to wait that long. You can get an Amazon package delivered the same day. Yeah, what if they change their minds, man? <laughs> there was so many sweet little orphans in there that could have done with a good uh, home, and this is what they wound up with. Yeah, and you know what? Guys, the one other thing that I do think is important about the orphanage scene, it's John that finds Esther. Like you would, mm. you would think that once we realize like everything we know about Esther, you would think that she would be the one that would come up to him and like tug on his leg and be like, "Are you here to adopt a child?" But no, no, no. Good old John, good old dependable Johnny, just walks right up to presumably the only thirty-three-year-old murderess in that house. And, <laughs> I mean, it would be really he, fucking unlucky if there was another one. <laughs> The, the other 33-year-old murderer that's from, like, South America is just, like, just waiting, counting down the days for <laughs> Esther to go. <laughs> Ugh. But it, it, it's John's fault, is what I was getting to. It's all John's fault. I mean, that's fair. We have the first of another thing that happens with a reasonable frequency in this film, uh, which is uh, cock-blocking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I yeah. actually, I'm going to be real with you, I actually loved this plot line. Of, like, this married couple desperately trying to find a moment to have sex, and, like, their kids keep ruining it for them. I don't know. It was it was one of those things that I am, of course, not a parent. I do not have a child. But I was like, fuck, that must be real as hell. Like, <laughs> to mm, just be mm. like, oh, um, hi, honey. How are you? Mommy and daddy are just playing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Honestly, I, I also... 
on a genuine level, appreciated seeing a married couple that was horny. Yeah. I feel like that never or rarely happens in films because it's like, you know, uh, very rarely do you even depict a married couple with any sort of realism. I liked that it was very obvious that these guys had had their ups and downs, but were sort of like, you know, she they, they have that whole really interesting beat where he's sort of asking Vera for sex and Kate's like, not tonight. And it's like, it just felt very real. Um, frustration that Esther sort of puts on them. I, I liked that subplot especially upon rewatch when you really understand what's happening it's it's the best dude <laughs> I, I like i like the fact that um, when i was thinking about this i was like oh there's a couple of instances where this happened but in your mind you're looking at it as like being the b story <laughs> I, I i'm like well look look it is very important to me that these two have sex <laughs> i was most invested yeah that was the b plot in my head yeah yeah wow that probably says more about me than anybody else but <laughs> it is true <laughs> Esther's first day at school is pretty eventful, opening with the kids failing abysmally to poker face her weird wardrobe decision. Yes. Yeah. I think but particular... she looked very nice. Yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have said anything. It's weird. But, but, I mean, sure know. enough, I mean, they are right. She does get the piss taken out of her straight away. Oh, totally. I would have just assumed she was Amish, to be dead honest with you. <laughs> I would, if I was in that school and I was another child there, I would have been like, all right, I don't get it. Yeah. But... <laughs> I don't know. Those kids were nasty. Connecticut's a weird place, dude. That school, from what we see of it, which is not very much, that school is teeming with dickhead children. The worst. I think kids are all like that everywhere, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. Here's one thing I appreciate about this movie, is that I feel like a lot of films are really gun-shy about showing shitty kids, violence to kids, kids being bad people. And, like, kids making decisions that are, like, bad decisions like i even like the scene where daniel uh shot the dove sort mm -hmm. of like it's a setup for esther to come and prove that she's evil but it's it sort of like that felt like yeah it, it was very real and it was very sort of like yeah kids suck dude or can suck kids are just small people <sighs> and they don't really understand what they're doing yet like they don't understand that things are hurtful they don't understand the consequences of it and i loved seeing the movie kind of play around with that because especially once you really understand what's happening with esther it all becomes so much more sinister where you realize like this woman is manipulating children like, yeah. and that rules that pigeon explodes as if it was full of dynamite <laughs> yeah that's that's a species endemic to connecticut so you know <laughs> what you're seeing there is a socially responsible piece of population control <laughs> yep yeah we may as well get to that actually um because it's pretty much what happens next yeah you see daniel uh, kind of fucking about with the paintball gun uh, shoots a pigeon and injures it and um esther sees this and comes over and is like well you have to kill it now because it's suffering and he's yeah. kind of flinching and kind of wimping out about it. I thought she was just going to, like, wring its neck, like most people do in that situation. But, yeah, she just picks up a rock and just has it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I, I did love that moment of her being like, send it to heaven, or whatever she says. <laughs> oh, oh, the one other important thing, they find her Bible. Kate finds the Bible in her room. Or maybe that's yeah, after, so but right around there, it's sort of established that Esther has a Bible, and there's, like, a picture of maybe it's her old family. I don't know. I trust my kid. Put yeah. it back in the drawer. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is around here. You're right. She finds the picture here, certainly, because it's around this time that we kind of hear this. So she gets in trouble for locking her bedroom door. And Kate's like, oh, we don't have locked doors in this house. I have a question for the two of you. And I don't often write down questions as we're going, but I did with this. How do we feel about the rate at which creepy kid stuff is being introduced here? Fine. Fine. I do think the film is a little bit long in general, but weirdly, 
I struggle to think where I would put cuts in. I, th- I think that the creepy stuff comes early and it's persistent and I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah, I tend to agree. What I thought was interesting about it from like a structural perspective, honestly, was that the movie is sort of bifurcated, right? Or the last act is very different. And that's sort of the thing is that until about the halfway point of the movie, it's honestly just a family drama. It's an interesting choice considering that shit's gonna go real off the rails in the last act but i i actually kind of liked it i i liked that it was spending so much time to let you live here's what i liked about it it put the focus on vera farmiga feeling shitty about questioning herself you know it's introducing the evil kid stuff little by little it was really interesting to me to sort of see an adult woman being like I kind of hate this kid. Like, there, there's something, like, very, we need to talk about Kevin about it, you know? The whole pitch of that movie is, what do you do if your kid's evil? And you're, like, slowly learning the kid's evil. You know what? I'm going to come out strong. This movie did in its first half what we need to talk about Kevin did in its whole runtime. <laughs> so it's sort of like, I actually liked that it was a little bit more of a slow disclosure, honestly. Yeah, that's kind of why I mentioned it. Because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of the same, to be honest. And I think that another cool thing about this is that as this is happening and as these elements are getting introduced... The film does spend a decent amount of time kind of showing you Kate and Esther bonding. Like we see starts teaching her the piano and she asks about Jessica, gets oh. the whole story and all this kind of thing. I think it makes the scale of the betrayal and the deception later work more because it spends some time on this here. Yes, I completely agree. It's sort of like what ends up happening is it, it takes so much time to set itself up. Not in a bad way, but it, it takes time. It's like a solid hour of setup. But the, but the purpose of it is that when shit really hits the fan, it all makes sense. Like, you never spend a moment being like, wait, fucking what? What's with the roses? What was that? I don't remember that. Like, you do remember it because it actually gave it a moment. And uh, I think that that's something that a lot of movies are afraid to do. There's this very standard logic in screenwriting that you, you gotta be an act two by page 30, you know? And since it's about a page a minute, in standard screenplay format, that's about 30 minutes you have to do all your setup. And that is fucking nothing. Especially for a movie like this, you're you're compressing a lot of stuff. Like I just rewatched Jurassic Park and and that does a similar thing. The first act of Jurassic Park is like an hour and 20 minutes. (laughs) And and then by the time all the dinosaurs start escaping and shit really goes wrong, you so intimately understand like the layout of the park, the setup of the movie, who these characters are, that it allows you to just react. And I think weirdly Orphan, I mean, don't get me wrong, Jurassic Park is a better movie, but I think weirdly Orphan achieves kind of the same thing, where where it spends so much time setting itself up that by the time that, you know, there, there's like the, the moment where uh, Sarsgaard is like, Kate, I don't believe you about the drinking. Like, that makes sense, because the movie has taken so much time to like remind you and and i don't know i, I thought it was I, I liked the setup honestly i'm i'm the same and uh speaking about uh keeping those plots ticking along the b story that is on everyone's minds continues here things are hotting oh. up with kate and john who ambitiously tries to initiate kitchen sex in a house with oh. three kids in it oh my god but can you blame them <laughs> i mean like i was in for that moment you know what i liked about it this is the one of the strangest things i will probably ever say in a public forum uh, <laughs> uh, so so kate is like trying to be responsible. She's like, no, 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 we can't, we can't. And then she does like a little skip as she's going away. And I'm like, it was cute to see them having fun. It was cute to see them excited about having sex. Like once again, for a couple that has kids, it's like, Mm -hmm. I really liked that this movie was like, oh no, they fucking, 
Like, it was, <laughs> I liked it. But of course, they ain't fucking, are they? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, no. Um, Not just fucking, by the way. They were trying to fuck where they eat. Good on them. Yeah. A bold, honestly. John's enthusiasm gets away from him, and I, I did note right down that he actually says, let's get down to business. Sexy. Sexy. Classic, you know, once again, I really wouldn't expect less from John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My real question about John, good old Johnny boy, is that besides obviously being a very successful architect, what does she see in him? I guess he's okay. Yeah, but that's all he is, though, isn't he? Yeah, he's okay. <laughs> Kate deserves better. She's struggled. <laughs> she seems like a wonderful lady. So yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, she's she, yeah she, she's overcome demons, and he's been unfaithful and negligent, and yeah, just kind of dull. And you know, honestly, it has to be mentioned again: the one kid in the orphanage, John, like the one yeah. kid, yeah. I know. and you sit down right next to her. <laughs> he yeah. he sucks, man. Uh, um, yeah. e- even tonight, again, I was shouting at him. I was like, "Open your fucking eyes, man! Look at what's going on around you. Your house is dissolving around you since the arrival of this little maniac, and everyone's telling you." That's I, I would like, as we proceed, for everyone to identify at what point you lost patience with John being a moron, because um, because with the benefit of hindsight, you can be like, "You should have seen that. You should have seen that." But if, if you put yourself in his shoes, my question as we go on will be. At what point are you like, no, this is when he should have been like, hang on a fucking minute. Uh, I think I know what it is for me. Okay, uh, okay. I'll say it when we get there. I was going to say, address it when it arises. Yeah, yeah let's keep it yeah. that way. Um, but yeah, Buzz killed once again by Esther being a little bit of a voyeur, leering at them from behind a pane of glass. She does a power to lurking in this film, doesn't she? Yes, so Karen, and what? Karen did it. Kate, uh, <laughs> what, Kate's, what Kate tries to do, which I think is like a reasonable proportional parenting response to this, is that she tries to have like the talk with Esther the morning after. Yes, and Esther, oof. The fuck what, what a, yeah, she, she just turns to her new mom and is like, you know, Kate, you're right. She's trying to be a responsible, good parent. She's like, you know, sometimes when people love each other, um, you know, they, 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 they get intimate. And Esther's like, oh, do you mean they fuck? <laughs> And keeps painting, and and I and I was just like, yes. Every time you do that, I'm just imagining Esther being played by Sasha Baron Cohen. Excuse me, mother. Why are you telling me this? I already know hell about doggy position. And I, uh, yeah, exactly. I, I, you're literally I, I, teaching an old dog tricks yes. here. Like that she's like, look, you you don't have to tell me anything. We're approximately roughly the same age. Oh yeah. <laughs> In response to this, Kate immediately suggests uh, psychiatric intervention. Yeah, which I must admit I thought was a little weird. I think it's a knee-jerk reaction, to say the least. Yeah, like we all know that she's evil, but I also thought it was a little strange that she was kind of like, look, my daughter understands the verb to fuck. Yeah. Gotta get her to the shrink. <laughs> Surprisingly prudish decision for someone mm. who was about to have sex with her husband in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Maybe it was. Maybe she was like internalizing that. She was like, "Fuck, man, I really did mess up. Should have, should have just kept things sexless in our marriage." <laughs> 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 the abstinence doesn't seem like such a bad idea now, does it? <laughs> oh no, Kate, no. <laughs> At this point, I, I, I really like the fact that this is introduced, and I think it's quite a good way to stoke a little bit of tension between Kate and John, because it's at this point that we see John talking to uh, the other mom, is it Joyce Patterson? Yeah. Um, oh, I, on the playground. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, the way he tells it, it's like, oh, I blew her off when she asked me to come and help her move this chair or whatever. And we see enough of it to know that that's not entirely true. Once again, I, I actually liked how they handled that. 
And it was one of the few, very few times in the movie where there was part of me that understood what John was doing. Where he's like trying to be like, uh huh, haha, yep, me and Kate, me and Kate might do it. Mm-hmm. Bye. Yeah. Like, like he's trying. Where where he really messed up was not telling her. Like, if, she does say that to him. She yeah. does say, look, if you just told me about this, we could have had a laugh about it. We could have been like, oh, stupid Joyce. Right. Um, it's, but he kept it to himself, and now he's he's fucked himself with it. No, exactly. Especially considering his past infidelities. It's like, look, if I'm their marriage counselor, I'm just sort of going to be like, John, you should have told your wife, man. And also, why did you pick the evil kid, John? I, I want to be their marriage counselor, actually. I think I can I think I can pull him out of this. I have thoughts. <laughs> but but yeah, no, it is it is funny because I liked the ambiguity of that because you're right. <sighs> he doesn't do the wrong thing, but he could have done a much better job of doing the right thing. Yes, I and think he could have been quicker off the mark in doing the right thing. Yes, I, yes. Yeah, and, and I would say this is a relatively innocuous lie by omission. Yeah. And it comes back to bite him pretty hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, this is why there's part of me that's like, no, them not having sex is the B-plot. Because it's like, yeah, dude, that, is that why John was talking to her? I don't know. We've yeah. been seeing him try and hook up with his wife, and little Esther keeps, like, literally her plan is to sexually frustrate them enough that he wants to have sex with her. And it's like, that's wild, first of all, that that is literally a plot line in this movie. But I actually liked that there was a tiny, tiny bit of precedence for for John to be like, to be flirty. Yeah, Um, yeah. But then Esther has other plans, doesn't she, on that playground? Uh, She sure does. So earlier we have seen her getting kind of quite, quite harshly bullied by this little girl, Brenda, who gets pushed off the slide. And at this point that I wrote down in my notes, I wish I loved anything as much as this film loves injuring children. (laughs) (laughs) Yo, yo, uh, honestly agree. (laughs) They they literally like they, they give a kid a gun. Like, this movie gives no fucks about your kids. <laughs> Refreshing, honestly. I but think so. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was in for it. She could have broken her neck. Crazy. And I believe this is the first time Max covers for her. Mm, yeah, correct. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The first kind of time that Max kind of gets on side um, with mm, Esther, kind of demonstrably. Yeah. Um, this is also around about the time there's the first hint of Esther maybe going to the dentist, which she kind of just shrugs off and ignores in this first instance. Although she kind of was a bit more manipulative about getting out of it the next time it's mentioned. Yeah, yeah, totally. And for good reason. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, yeah, I, I, remember, God, I remember thinking that at the time and not, then not connecting the dots at all for why that ties in later. Daniel has an outburst about Esther at the table, which is pretty nasty, kind of mean-spirited when they're having dinner that night around the time that they're talking about this incident. We also find out at this point, and I think this is another really, really interesting point, where we find out that Esther is a classical pianist who basically let Kate teach her piano because she felt sorry for her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's, such a, like, it's, it's such a shot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That's the kind of stuff I liked. And and that's the stuff that I was happy with them taking so much time because it's weird. It's not evil, but it is the sort of thing that if I was Kate, I would be like, what the fuck? Like, not only am I embarrassed Mm. that I was bamboozled by by a literal nine-year-old, but also, like, (laughs) I, I would feel very uncomfortable with that. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes me most uncomfortable watching it, is the fact that every single discussion they have, every single thing that Kate does, is weaponized against her. Yeah. Specifically yeah. against her. Esther's manipulation is very well done, because it's... Ugh, the, you know, we all know John sucks. 
And with the sort of framework of John sucks, like most of it tracks. There there are a couple of times in the movie that I think I'm sort of like, all right, I feel like somebody would have been on, on Kate's side now. But uh, yeah, I, I liked the subtle manipulation of, of her that was only ever seen by her. Like, mm-hmm. like, could you imagine if your if your girlfriend or your partner came to you and, and was like, yeah, she can play piano. It was so creepy. That sounds insane. That That's a, a weird thing for somebody to complain about. But if you're there in the moment, yeah, it's fucking scary. It's weird. I get it. <laughs> Especially at this point in the film, I liked that a lot of the creepy kid moments were to a degree not sinister, just sort of bizarre. At this point, pretty important. Like you say, this is it's around this time that we find out about John's history because Esther tells Kate about the encounter with Joyce Patterson, which we've kind of touched on. Joyce At definitely point- wants to fuck him, though. Oh God, yeah. She she was. Uh, it's something her and Esther have in common. Game knows game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's, it's actually weird that John is so desirable to everyone in this, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I think so. <laughs> he's the only man in the. He's the only grown-up man in the film, except for the man who the the couple of guys who you see from Estonia. Yeah, and you know what? That first dude that picks up the phone that speaks English, I'd date him before John. I'll be real with you. <laughs> he seemed like a nice lad. He was just like working in a mental institution, being patient with this weird woman on the phone. Like, yeah. it's like, yeah, that guy. Go, go date, go date Sergey. He's a cool dude. Or as I had him in my notes, adult Estonian Daniel. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um, just to add another layer of weird on top of weird. Sister Abigail is back. She comes to the house. Mm. Uh, she has some exposition for us, uh, specifically that Esther has a history of being adjacent to graphic violence or disasters specifically attempted murder and arson that is true yep there's not too much more to say about that she's just it's just an extreme nope. it's like, uh, to be honest actually i think if i was john this might be the moment uh, this is the moment i john sucks from here on out specifically i give him the tiniest tiniest bit of wiggle room during the conversation with the sister but after her death all my sympathy <laughs> for john is gone like literally this woman comes to your house your wife is freaking out the woman presumably you've been married to for at least 13 or 14 years judging by your child this woman comes to your house is like mm, man crazy how death keeps following around this person you just adopted and then immediately <laughs> dies <laughs> like that that is the moment that john really needs to get his shit together and start being like oh wow i don't know she's nice to me like fuck you dude <laughs> like, truly his mother's child in yeah. my opinion <laughs> yeah that's a two-stage dive in my patience for him i think you've just described yeah. it perfectly because you are quite correct because esther overhears this conversation realizes that if she doesn't get her finger out the jigs up also finds out from max one where the safe is two where the keys are for the safe and three that the safe has a gun in it uh, by the way uh first time a gun is pointed at a child under 10 in this movie Mm-hmm. And it will not be the last. It is also not the second yeah. last time that happens. <laughs> and you know, honestly, speaking as an American, our gun culture is just so wonderful. And I'm just so happy. Oh my God, dude. <laughs> like, Jesus, man. I You would not be able to make this today. <laughs> and mm, I, I think fuck, yeah. the fact that it was a French director is the only reason that anybody on that set was like, yeah, you can just point the gun at her, sure. This is, it's like... There are a few things that I thought when I was watching this, I was like, you wouldn't get to make this now. No, I like, agree. You, you absolutely would not be able to make this film on this scale with these actors now. No chance. Yeah. Honestly, there there were moments, and I'm happy they did, genuinely, but there were moments that I was a little surprised they signed up for it. Like, like because they must... Presumably, they read the script. Yeah, it was... Um, I, I was surprised, but... 
I also really liked the movie, so maybe they're just cool people. Maybe they're like they're, I always I always kind of think about Ethan Hawke as being the best example of like air quotes reputable mm-hmm. actor who takes on really eccentric genre stuff all the time, and I really appreciate the fact that he does that. And it's like yeah, that. the death of Sister Abigail is here, and it's brutal, but also quite funny in my opinion because uh, Esther and Max follow her car because Esther kind of manipulates Max because Max, for as much as he ends up being quite capable with a firearm and also prevents a murder in this film, in fact, prevents two murders. Um, Mm. despite being about five or six years old (laughs) is quite malleable because she is a child so Esther gets like this woman is coming to take me away are you going to help me well uh, by this point Max is already pretty scared of Esther because she's just had a gun pointed on at her so the kind of manipulation that takes place here where Esther essentially makes Max her tiny accomplice in murder yeah. Um, yeah, is relatively simple to pull off by this point because she's already terrified of her she literally gets pushed in front of a car Oh, yeah. The other thing that I loved about this, because you're absolutely right, that the, the manipulation is easy for Esther at this point, because also remember she got Max on her side. Like, the, I love the moment, like, Esther mm. knows ASL, first and foremost. She's very fluent in sign language, which is something that her brother and father seem to not give one shit about. And <laughs> so she's already, like, sort of winning this this child over. And the other thing, I loved the moment where Esther begins to pray, like say grace before she eats, and Max mimics her. And Kate, for a second, doesn't know what to do. Like, she sort of is about to, like, do the prayer as well. And then she's like, no, what the fuck am I doing? <laughs> like, it was, I liked that they were setting up that Max, before, presumably before the gun is pointed on her, is probably really excited to have Esther there. Like, this is a, a kid about her age who she can talk to. And, like, it was a little heartbreaking to me to see Esther, like, this grown-ass woman be like, yes, child, I do love you, and then, like, just drag her into this. But, yes, the accomplice stuff was great, and and I loved seeing the kids struggle with it. It's fun. Yeah. Let me just reiterate again, that little kid that plays Max is fucking excellent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Looks on as um Abigail is bludgeoned to death by Esther with a hammer. And then yeah, I think it's it's the part where she where Esther and Max drag the body off the road that yes. made me laugh. Yeah, it rolls. <laughs> <laughs> and the car drives right by the parked car. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> also it's at this point that she threatens Daniel with a box car because she spots <laughs> that he's like he sees them having their post murder debrief in the treehouse. Mm, yeah. Threatens to cut his little prick off. Before he knows what to do with it. Yeah, yeah. I think also that this, you know, obviously the murder itself is the turning point (laughs) where it's sort of like from here on out, Esther is portrayed as nothing but like evil, evil, evil in the best way possible. Mm -hmm. Where where it's sort of like, yeah, it it is full on evil kid movie now. And this is what you were all here for. No more cute, cute couple stuff. This kid's going to get a gun. (laughs) Yeah, because I mean, a large large part of the second act of this thing is basically a long form montage of crazy Esther stuff. Yes. Beginning Mm -hmm. with when she says to the psychiatrist that she has this kind of terse relationship with Kate. uh, John immediately takes the psychiatrist's side about this. And that kind of re-sparks the tension with Kate and John. They also hear about Abigail's murder at this point. And yeah, I think at this point, Esther is fully evil and John's fully an idiot. Yeah. Yep. Like both of like both of those stances have been confirmed and will not let up until the end of the film slash when they die. Yes. Around about this point, by the way, there's a moment where Kate says that she's not going to keep the therapist on. She's done with the therapist. Yeah. That's it. She clearly sees the therapist as also a fucking idiot. Um, yes. But I'm I'm thinking, having seen the film, watching it again, going, 
you might want to keep that therapist on because your daughter is a fucking mess after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was a little disappointed that that we didn't then have a montage of Kate trying out therapists who like <laughs> one by one were all sort of like, I don't know. Sounds like your daughter really has a point. <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's just every therapist in Connecticut's just a piece of shit. <laughs> like, it's, I, it's it's funny because I just saw Hannibal for the first uh, the the, the t- television series Hannibal, mm-hmm. and there's a certain subgenre of like evil and shitty therapists. And like I, I'm just once I would love to see some a movie like this where somebody goes to the therapist and the therapist is like, yeah, no, I get it, man. You got to kick that kid out. <laughs> but it's such a I, I get why they do it. It's a cheat to to do it that way. Uh, you have to make Kate even more beset upon. And uh, yeah, shitty therapist, a great way to do it. The consequence of this, I guess, is that basically that she's kind of like left kind of scrambling for allies. And she tries to get some information out of uh, Daniel and Max about Esther here with no kind of success, which I think is kind of like, it's quite cool because you can just see very plainly the consequences of the intimidation and stuff that had been happening before that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the child abuse, basically. <laughs> sure. I mean, yeah, yeah let's, let's call it what it is. Yeah. John then tells Esther that she doesn't have to go to the dentist and can uh, stay off school and hang out and stuff, confirming my suspicion that he's not only an idiot, but also a negligent parent. <laughs> uh, he suggests that Esther does something to mend fences with Kate, and uh, she gives her flowers cut from Jessica's grave, oof, which oof. I think actually is potentially one of the most horrifying moments of this entire thing. I completely agree. It's definitely the meanest thing she does, which is saying a lot considering that she, like, murders <laughs> but yeah. it's like there's something particularly cruel about it you know what it is the opening with the stillbirth is so graphic and it spends so much time establishing how hard it was for kate that she really really is trying to to do her best and get over this trauma and uh, and is doing pretty damn well and to have this like evil kid be like i ruined your beautiful memorial to your dead infant daughter it's like Oh, that's a rough but one, again, dude. Yeah, that, that should have been the moment as well where John was like, what the fuck are yes! you doing? Yeah, you would think that John had nothing to do with the stillbirth. Yeah, it's wild wow. to me how. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like, no wonder this woman was a goddamn alcoholic. This dude was not helping her at all. No. It's like seemingly she's going through this entire grief herself. Considering that John is the unfaithful one. And the one who I think that yeah. is like, like you say, they've got their own versions of troubled past, but John's is self-inflicted. Yeah. Uh, Kate had legitimate demons that she's overcome and is now in a situation yeah. where she has this kind of like this prior to this kind of stable living situation with these two children and this very, this loving family set up. It is crazy that, and she says it in the film, she says, why does everyone get the benefit of the doubt from me, uh, from you except me? Yeah, very valid point. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great line. It's a perfect like crystallization of what's wrong with how he interacts with her for the entire time. Yeah. So yeah, she kind of loses it, understandably with uh, with Esther here, grabs her by the arm, carrying on with the <laughs> long form crazy Esther montage stuff. She then later on, Esther breaks her arm in a vice, which takes forever. It takes like a full minute to happen on camera. Yeah, um, and it rules. Absolutely, like it's so squirming, it's so gross. Yeah, it rules. It totally rules. It's like it's one of those uh, moments where you just twist up in your chair, and that's my favorite thing about horror movies is when they catch you in that moment where you are truly just reacting like mm-hmm. yes if you're sitting there really thinking about it you're like oh wow that's a really good effect the the shot of this is really but but it catches you it's such a specific form of violence you know if you see somebody get shot with a gun in a movie 
it's hard to really empathize with that because I've never been shot. I don't really know what that feels like, but I have broken a bone and like sort of mm-hmm. seeing somebody like slowly, like when, when a piece of violence is that specific and quite honestly, that fucked up, yeah, it makes you sort of think about the physicality of it. And, it and it's more hurtful. I made something that was entirely one scene of violence to a Lynn, um, and it caused a lot of people, a lot of problems that watched it. So uh, yeah. I kind of, I, I kind of get it. Yeah. What I think is cool about this, and I think that like a reasonable, a reasonable kind of yardstick for how effective these kinds of things are. I remember thinking that's a good effect, but I didn't think that until after. Yeah. Like I think mm. that if you're noticing that kind of thing in the moment, then you probably are looking at a good effect where the scene isn't working all the way. Because at the time I wasn't thinking anything like that. When it was actually unfolding in front of me, I was like, that is fucking revolting. And that was my only reaction in the moment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like that's an effective horror film. <laughs> like that's something doing its job. I-, I love things like that. So I was all in for Vice Arm. Oh, by the way, parenthetically, from this point on in the movie is when John, my guy. <laughs> like even more so than before it's like his slow descent into being the worst of partners <laughs> to his poor wife yes like because he was there like he must have seen that there was no way she could have broken her arm and i also remind yeah. you that the, the sister is still dead he probably drives by that goddamn caution tape every day and sees it and is just sort of like wow crazy how that happened right near my house Anyway, then then that that kid would have been screaming if she'd broken her arm in the moment. Yeah, you would think. You know, hey, hey, John, I know that you're only a very adult man, but um, that's not how broken bones work. Like, it it doesn't like break overnight. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like it's like, uh, yeah. Oh, in the moment it was pretty uncomfortable, and then four hours later, I was like, you know what? I think this might actually be um, quite severely broken. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. It's like a it's like a, a hair away from a compound fracture. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, he he goes kind of not sad, just disappointed on Kate. Um, yeah. Kind of doesn't kick her out, but kicks her out of the marital bed where he sleeps with the little girl. Oh, uh, where yeah. he sleeps with the thirty-three-year-old woman that is systematically abusing his children. <laughs> this movie rules. <laughs> this movie rules. <laughs> Poor Vera goes downstairs. She's just, oh, what am I doing? What's happening in my life? Ah, um, yeah, she almost relapses at this point, buys two bottles of wine, uh, mm. hoards one, pours out the other, oh. um, which will kind of resurface later. Of course, well, that bottle of wine comes back, it makes a reappearance in record time. Yeah. And the doctor, like the psychiatrist and John, they're sending Kate off to rehab. Or they're <laughs> trying to. Yeah. Yeah, they're just straight up like, they're straight up like, we're going to check you into an institute. And it's like, whoa! <laughs> God, they're the this, worst, dude. This, this is the, Yeah, this is the second time in this film where somebody, in response to something that is either like relatively innocuous or totally unsubstantiated, is like, you know what you need? Professional intervention right now. Yes! Well, actually, the scene with the psychiatrist does come after the scene with Max in the car where Esther tries to kill her. Kind of, let's just ground it really quickly. It's like, what happens is... That mm-hmm. ultimately, uh, Esther takes the brakes off the family car with Max still inside it the day after this incident. Uh, so this is very nearly an absolute disaster. Disaster <laughs> not only if Max survives, but it does make Kate look extremely negligent. At this point, Esther unearths the wine bottle in the house. 
And this is why we get this conversation between her, John, and the therapist, and they're talking about right. uh, sending her to A. The movie brushes past it, but it's like a really important bit of um, backstory, is that the whole reason that, I believe the whole reason that Max is deaf, or at least the, the part of the reason that her deafness is so severe, is because Kate was negligent and drunk, and she fell into the pond, the icy yep. pond. Yep. So there's actually like, there's a precedent for this moment. Yeah, of of uh-huh. Kate being drunk and negligent and almost murdering her daughter. <laughs> it's coming back. So I just wanted to jump in and mention that. <laughs> no, that's right, because it's, it's cheated in Act 1 as well. It's like che- uh, Chekhov's Frozen Pond. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well said. <laughs> I've actually got Chekhov's Frozen Pond written later. Ah, have you? Amazing. Incredible. <laughs> I also love that you both thought of that when there is a literal Chekhov's gun in the movie. <laughs> like... Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, 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 which I did not write down. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, so basically she manages to negotiate her way out of going to rehab, thank the Lord. Daniel tries to get Max on side at this point. He's now kind of trying to like step up to the plate and be the one that's putting up this kind of necessary level of resistance to Esther. Yeah. He's tired of his dad not watching him play Guitar Hero. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Enough is enough yeah. and it's time for a change. Max <laughs> may have been intimidated into silence, but has helpfully done drawings of all of Esther's atrocities. Yeah, you would think that her like sure. school teacher would be curious about that. <laughs> I assume I assume that they put Max in, in a in like a special needs classroom, or, or at least a school for the deaf. And yeah, you would you would think that she'd just be absent mindedly doodling like the fucking evidence in the yeah. treehouse. <laughs> I like the idea Maybe of that's that being... just on like her uh, like her fallback. Should anything <laughs> happen to her, like it's like uh, look under the mattress. The evidence is under the mattress, or uh, off the floorboards. Uh, you'll find what you need. Like maybe this okay. is just her like her insurance. I like the fact that we're all talking about evidence like it would be admissible in a court of law. Like the case against you is pretty thin, but I mean, uh, this it's, it's clearly you in the drawing. Yeah, we do have this Crayola <laughs> drawing of you. <laughs> um, here, here's what I think happened. All right, all right. So I'm retconning this. I assume this was a deleted scene. Um, uh, that Max takes these, you know, we see Max, she's drawing, and, and it's like she's really upset. She's trying to get this out. And she goes to the one person in her family that she know will listen to her. Goddamn John. And she hands him the drawing and he goes honey that's great and he puts it back and doesn't look at it again <laughs> but he can't talk to his deaf daughter yeah. he never learned sign language that dude sucks i'm gonna yep, yep. i'm gonna put this on the fridge <laughs> yeah <laughs> where i can ignore it every day oh man <laughs> do you think he ever even opened the book of sign language <laughs> do you think he no, ever even like really. sat down for one minute he was daydreaming about joyce fucking patterson that's what he was doing damn <laughs> harsh truth piece of shit um, uh, one of my favorite pieces of psychological warfare that happens in this entire film happens here um, as Kate is starting to get wise to this well she's wise to, she's wise to it from the beginning but she's being a little bit more overt about all this as she kind of increasingly becomes this woman with nothing to lose um, Esther starts quoting her diary back to her like these really traumatic yeah. passages from her diary absolutely oh. horrible on a par with the grave flowers thing for me agreed it's such a violation and it's like it's so ugh. like i said at the beginning like this movie is so cruel to kate and i think these two moments in particular it's like it's such severe emotional violence and and severe emotional violence that rings true in the sense that it's not like a, a crush didn't like you back you're an adult woman who has had very bad things happen to you mm-hmm. and you're really trying and and here comes along somebody to parrot your words back at you in condemnation oh 
it's nasty rough. business yeah. yeah um and that's how she found the wine bottle as well because kate apparently wrote about where she hid her stashes yes mm. yeah 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 it does answer that question you're right kate goes digging for pretty much anything that can kind of support her case here um just to shoot through the kind of things that we discover she goes and finds the bible again uh digs in a little harder finds some references to the sarn institute which we learn is a yeah. mental hospital which again like i say we find out from adult estonian daniel who sure. uh, gives gives us some info <laughs> Um, next major set piece in this thing, I think, is that um, Esther catches Daniel in the treehouse, kind of oh. looking at the evidence that is stashed there, and sets it on fire. At this point, I mean, like, this is ridiculous. I mean, like, watching Daniel trying to escape from the flaming treehouse inferno, again, is kind of inherently funny. But also, yeah. when you play back maybe about the last 20 minutes of this conversation, and we shoot through everything that has just happened in sequential order, it's crazy. Yeah. Round about the point where she's trying to smother Daniel in the hospital... I've got written, she's just too evil now. It's as if she doesn't even care now. Things are just like, fuck it, you can die, you can die, I'll kill you too. You come at me, you're dead too. For somebody who is very, very meticulously laying down this plan, <clears throat> she does definitely hit a point of, uh, like, murder spree? Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree. 100%. 100%, no. yeah, because, um, cause, yeah, Daniel escapes from the treehouse, but at the expense of his neck. He injures himself quite badly, goes to mm. hospital. At this point, Esther is kind of trying to tie off some loose ends here, tries to smother him. Again, Max, hero of the piece, intervenes. Yes, Max, truly MVP. You guys were right about that. I, <laughs> Max is truly the hero of this movie. Very strongly of that opinion. Yeah. Kate, again, <laughs> I think understandably, because she realizes what's going on here in the hospital when this kind of assassination attempt happens on Daniel. She like She's not there when it happens, but she puts the pieces together and attacks Esther, which again, under the circumstances, I mean, it's fairly obvious to the rest of us, but John's still not there. <laughs> just in his, he's just absent from life, dude. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> like m- more fluest horseship from John. How Just much needs good. to happen? Uh, well, I guess we do get that answer eventually. <laughs> we know what needs to happen, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, he's the worst man. He's yeah. he's a nightmare. If you need further proof of that, when we go home, like because Kate's kept in the hospital, John goes home and takes Esther and Max with him. He's yep. putting Max to bed. Esther's standing at the door being creepy as fuck like she always is. John's just trying to kind of put his little daughter to bed. There you go, sweetheart. You go to sleep. Night, night. Daddy loves you. That little girl is fucking terrified. And he's just like, good night. <laughs> good night. I'm about to go chug this bottle of wine. <laughs> he's like, yeah. uh-huh. he, he's straight up, for, for somebody that was like very involved with an alcoholic for a very long time, he's just straight up like, finally my chance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's like, oh, college I- all over again. Again, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, this this terrible trauma has been visited on my family and my recovering alcoholic wife's in hospital. I'm gonna go get absolutely fucking slaughtered and chain smoke. Yes, yeah. he's smoking in his house where his very young daughter is upstairs. Like, step outside, John. Yeah, you, you live in the middle of nowhere. That set my teeth on edge as well. Yeah. Um, I have to say, yeah, um, Andy, you're quite right. This is definitely uh, where the film goes. Uh, off the deep end in terms of the grossness i think that it is and again this is what i was talking about when you talk about putting yourself kind of in your own shoes when you watched it for the first time when you don't know what's happening here and when you don't know where this is going to end up going when esther is trying to seduce the drunk john is 
incredibly uncomfortable viewing. Like, it's, yes. when I first watched this, I didn't know what the twist was. Right. Um, which I'm very pleased yeah. about in hindsight. Yeah, I, also, I did not either the first time I saw it. No, yeah, neither did I. No. It's infinitely um, a bad experience when you don't. But it yes. does mean that for the sequence where she is trying to do this, it's just like one of the most uncomfortable things that I've ever seen in film. She's got a seduction technique down, though, because she comes in, she's all dolled up, she's made herself a nice little dress, and she appears to bring him what, to my eye, looks like a cheese board with Brussels sprouts on it. Yes, yeah, she does. She like puts together like a little uh, cheese plate, and she's just straight <laughs> up like, my favorite part, first of all, yes, everything about the scene is grotesque and uncomfortable in like the best way. Like like once again, you're you're just curling up in your chair being like, stop. <laughs> like, stop this now. <laughs> yep. And the moment that really got it for me, I only noticed it this time. So John, piece of shit that he be, and you know, it has been very well established in our B plot that he's very sexually frustrated. Mm-hmm. And he begins to like confide in this child he begins to like break down crying being like oh things are so hard right now and she starts like stroking his hair horrible and it's the grossest shit because like she if you keep in your mind that this is a 33 year old woman she's just sort of sitting there being like "Uh uh-huh 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 like come like ooh, let me let me just touch thine cheek it is so fucking gross also by the way hold on wasn't sarsgaard in an education yes. where he also plays somebody dating somebody scandalously young yes um yeah his character in i i think i i love an education um uh, yeah his his character in that is fucking gross uh yeah because he's like this extremely predatory older guy who dates katie mulligan's character i think is 16 yeah all right um, yeah. i'm just saying he's got his thing down <laughs> he's he's really he's really pigeonholed himself here. It's an unfortunate <laughs> thing to be typecast as. Um, Do you think that was a discussion with his agent? Um, like, t- like he reads the script and he's like, again. But <laughs> <laughs> quite like the fact that we all just acknowledged that somebody bringing you a charcuterie board is a legitimate piece of seduction. <laughs> um, you know what? Given the circumstances, I- I'm I'm happy that that was the choice she went with. Honestly, perfect accompaniment for red wine. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, you're right. yeah. I mean, like, look, this is she's a 33 year old woman. She knows what she's doing. She's from Europe. They're they're more they're more cultured. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Kind of alongside like first steps, first words. It's like, oh look, she made her first security board. <laughs> it's one of those rites of passage. Uh, I think that the film mercifully, after putting you in this such an incredibly uncomfortable position as a viewer, resolves this immediately. Because as this is ongoing, yes. we see Kate in the hospital. She gets a call from the Sarn Institute, and at this point, we learn that Esther is not what she appears to be. She is, in fact, a 33-year-old Lena Clamor who is afflicted with hypopituitarism. Um, well done. A, thank you very yeah. much. That is not the first time that I have said that word out loud today. I have been practicing. That's like, yeah, it's a condition that stunts your growth and causes proportional dwarfism. We also learned very quickly in a very exposition-heavy phone call that uh, she has spent a large part of her life masquerading as a young girl and murdering families. When she can't seduce the men, she murders the families and also the men. I love the fact that like, yes. um, at this point, we know exactly what's going on. We know exactly who she is. And the guy on the phone from the sound industry is like, if you think it might be her, go home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He's, uh, yeah. It, he is bizarrely unconcerned, honestly. He's sort of like, look, I'm looking at her and I'm telling you she's about to try to fuck your husband and then murder him when she doesn't. But <clears throat> I don't know, like maybe call the cops. And then, so Kate, happening contemporaneously with this kate is like getting in her car and fucking 
gunning it. Arctic blast conditions. Oh my god, and it's like yeah. straight up like white out, like it's Fury Road for like two minutes where she's just, she's a mom on a mission. One of my favorite scenes in the movie then happens where Sarsgaard goes into Esther's room and discovers the blacklight paintings. Yes. Uh, I love this. Now, love yes, this, love no, this, love First this. of all, a, a genuinely adored the scene. It, it rules. But I had completely forgotten this plot point. And when I first put in the movie, which I also own for the record, <laughs> when I first put in the, the the Blu-ray, I hit play and all that. And it comes up with the Warner Brothers logo with like with the black light on it for a half second. I was like, wait, is this Suicide Squad? I was just going to say. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, I thought like somehow the disc had been switched. And I'm like, I, I do not own Suicide Squad. What is the, what is happening? It was just a very strange call forward. But that scene where he finds all the all the paintings on the wall and there's like the very graphic images of them in lusty embraces, that shit rules. Yeah. I was so in for that. And I think that even though you know about her and her age and stuff like that, I think that like it's this is sufficiently close to the reveal that it still feels incredibly gross and uncomfortable. Yeah, it's very disturbing. It does get under your skin. I am reasonably convinced, in total honesty, that that scene is why this movie scored so badly. I think that a lot of people were actually disturbed by it. And I think that when you have a horror movie that is legitimately disturbing with something uncomfortable, especially with something taboo, if it is not sort of positioned to you as an art horror film, people will inherently dismiss it. Like, if this was Midsommar for some reason and and they were doing a similar plot line, I think critics would have eaten that shit up. They would have been like, A24, oh, man, you guys sure are the best. You guys are the future. But because it was the House of Wax guy and because it came out when it did and because, quite frankly, it's glossy, it's, it's like very much positioning itself visually and tonally as a popcorn horror film. And when it starts engaging with material that's genuinely disturbing and actually makes the audience uncomfortable, I I think that's what tanked its Rotten Tomatoes score. I really do. And I think it's too bad because I think that actually it's pretty fucking awesome. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I I think that, yeah, the the film's done its best work at this point because I think that, like, the hunt and chase sequence that kind of carries this through to the end is pretty protracted. It's the only time in a two-hour film where I really start to feel a sag. Yes, I actually agree with that. Yes. So... Basically, the bullet points of this are that you've got Kate in this race against the clock to get home. While this is going on, Esther kills John. In her most heroic act of the movie, yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, um, the, so the slowest horse crosses the finish line and immediately dies. But again, John is stabbed to death here, right? Graphically, over and over and over again in front of his young daughter. Yep. yep. So she has to see that as well. One thing that also grosses me out that's just come back to me here is once Kate gets to the house... And she's kind of creeping around trying to find Esther in the house. She barges into the bedroom and Esther's got it all set up for their presumably sexual liaison that's going to take place in there and she's got the rose on the bed and all that that's pretty that's pretty gross the seduction bed do you think it was one of Jessica's roses oh (laughs) Brendan that's exactly the reaction you wanted from that remark wasn't it I I, 100% was (laughs) but I also love that moment it's like such a weird little detail and of course, Kate doesn't totally understand it. So she sort of like stumbles in the door and she's like, what the fuck? And then just keeps going. <laughs> yeah, it's great. The only other thing that I think really bears mentioning without just kind of running through how this basically pulls together into an ending is that I think that they grime up Isabel Furman really well for the part yes. where she becomes uh, where she becomes yeah. Lena. She looks brilliant at the end. Yeah, they even do some like contouring along her jaw 
to like make it look like the fake teeth she had in were like giving her a fuller face. Yeah. And and it's it's really effective. She's she's like very creepy and all of a sudden does look significantly older. And like there's something cool about that. I, I mean, obviously she's still a child actress, but she for a half second there's party that's like, I don't know, kind of believe it. <laughs> she <laughs> seems like a crazy Russian woman right now. Yeah, exactly. Ultimately, yeah, the chase takes us to uh, Chekhov's frozen pond, where uh, yeah. Max continues to be our MVP, not by killing Esther, but by operating a firearm with sufficient accuracy to blow a hole in the pond so Karen can kick <laughs> Esther in the head, uh, break her neck, and leave her to freeze to death under presumably horrible circumstances. All I'm thinking this whole time, though, is get that little girl a fucking jacket and shoes. <laughs> She's in her pajamas. I will say, I had forgotten that the movie ends as soon as esther dies like there's no wrap-up yes ah. <clears throat> yeah that's it <laughs> there's no possible good wrap-up like everybody's been murdered except kate and her daughter from kate and max yeah. and it's like her whole life has been ruined it's really interesting that the movie's like cool all right we're done i think that that's really cool i think that you're right there's there's no there's nowhere else for it to go like everyone yeah. is either dead or profoundly traumatized yeah, and they like, literally <laughs> just escape from the pond, walk through the trees. You hear the sound of distant uh, police sirens, and we're just out. Yeah, like hard cut to director title card. It is funny because I saw that on the copy I have. There's an alternate ending, and I do not know what mm. the alternate ending is. And I do. <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. So the film kind of ends. We don't really know what's happened to the family at all, and then when the police turn up, essentially we see. Esther getting ready, getting back into her Esther clothes and opening the door for the police, presumably about to play that character again and continue to move on to another family. Interesting. All right. Yeah, I'd accept that. I I get why they reshot it. It's such a grim movie and it's like so punishing Mm. over a lot of it. And then it literally just leaves you hanging. It's like, it's like, yeah, there is not really yeah. a great ending to any of this. But at least she broke the girl's neck, I guess. Yeah, there's <laughs> always that, which is super graphic something. as well. Yeah. But yeah, with that, we're, we're done with Orphan. And Andy, your take this time around. Um, when I first saw it, I was a bit cold on it. I never really gave it, gave it another thought until you mentioned it a few months back, a year ago, whatever it was on the show. And I went away and watched it again. And I remember it was probably one of those things where I wasn't really paying it a massive amount of attention. It was probably just on. I would have been texting you or fanning about doing something else. But watching it tonight and really having to give it a lot of my attention to do this, I found myself warming to it a lot more. And I found myself coming round to some of the ickier stuff that maybe bothered me the first time I watched it. Now, I think is such a strong and important element of it. And I think it's quite clever, like I said earlier, how she uses everything that she learns to weaponize every little detail, not just against Kate, but against stuff against John, because ultimately the stuff about John and Joyce is affecting John. It's got a knock-on effect on John as well. I think it's quite cleverly layered in a lot of ways, but that ending is still preposterous in a way that I just really respond to. Finding out that she's a little scary women is just fucking wonderful it was wonderful the first time that was the highlight when i saw it in the cinema there was an audible gasp i think if i was to show it to someone now who hadn't seen it you'd still get that audible gasp 
even 11 years later. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I largely agree. When I'd seen this before, I'd liked it. And for some reason, this was the viewing of it that I got the most out of. And I think that it was mm. maybe because, you know, when you're watching someone like this and you know that it's like, oh, it's kind of like a creepy kid movie on the surface. I think that you are maybe potentially predisposed to not really particularly root yourself in the setup that it's trying to do. And I think that it was only when I was watching it again that I realized to what extent it gets that right. Like I say, I mean, I think that for a two-hour film, I think that the only time that this feels like it's making up the numbers or padding out is the chase sequence at the end which i think has maybe three natural stopping points that it avoids mm-hmm. before it ends at the point but i think that in terms of like set up to pay off i think that it's really really well done really well paced and like you say andy just like really nicely layered yeah, yeah. um brendan hell of a pick gotta hand it to you really enjoyed re-watching this and yeah i got a, i got a lot out of it on this watch same I- i'm i'm happy that i liked it better this time I, I i'm happy that this film exists it's a weird intersection of like something that is incredibly grounded and realistic and incredibly lurid in exploitation and and like it's it, it's a strange animal but i like so many parts of it that i actually do think it's worth your time i i completely agree about the ending though it is funny that literally the only time the movie drags is at its climax mm-hmm. and I, yeah. I i think it's because by the time you get there you realize that you you were kind of enjoying all the really fucked up stuff mm-hmm. and now that yeah. it's just kind of this you know it's not all that different materially from like the the climax of a of any action movie no. and it's a little disappointing because the movie up until that point had been so clever I, I think the reason the ending is a little disappointing is because it's just not quite as up to snuff as all of the fucked up stuff esther does leading up to it but i agree yeah thank you i i i'm really happy to see this again though and i cannot tell you how relieved i was that i actually liked it (laughs) so yeah yeah Brendan, speaking of films that I am glad exist, I watched a lot of Pastor this week because you were kind enough to share a link with us. Uh, <laughs> yes. let us here in the UK uh, catch up with it. One of the reasons that you're here, of course, is that you are the writer-director of The Velocipaster, which I, and I believe Andy as well, uh, we've both seen it and loved it. Yes, yes thank absolutely. you. absolutely. It's very much my speed i had an absolute blast with it thanks so much guys i appreciate it before we get into kind of uh, the future of that film and indeed what follows that film uh, do you want to talk just a little bit about how uh, it came together because i read a little bit about it in advance of this and the story's <laughs> pretty good <clears throat> yeah it's it's absolutely insane <laughs> basically um <laughs> God, it's so hard to condense. I had made a fake Grindhouse trailer in 2011 with that title, and it got a little bit of attention. I I wanted to be sort of a a very serious horror filmmaker. I made my first film, Animosity, and it didn't really do anything. And then I couldn't stop thinking about the Velocipaster. (laughs) So I decided it was going to be my second film, and the young woman I was seeing at the time happened to know a rich Chinese woman who I have never met who gave me $35,000 to go make it. <laughs> and so oh, I yeah. have never met you that person. You still haven't met? Yep, yep. Her name is Jessica Yua. I don't think she's ever seen the film. Every time I've tried to send it to her, <laughs> she is so disinterested. Like, I think she's one of those people that is so wealthy that she forgot she gave me $35,000. I... I was going to say, I can't imagine a situation where, like, how much money do you have to have before someone's like, do you want to see what I spent your 35 grand on? And you're like, nah, not really. Yeah, no, exactly. Like, honestly, I, I have met people that would walk into a store and spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 on just clothes. And I think that yeah. Jessica is one of these people. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. But I tried to get the film to her for two, three years. 
And after two, three years of like radio silence or confusion, I'm like, all right, <laughs> well, you know what? The, the word's out if you want it. <laughs> but yeah, so that is how I made the movie. That is, it's, that's actually wow. true. I shot it wow. in 2016. We released, we premiered in Portland in 2017, had a home video release in 2019. And uh, here we are. At least in the States, yeah. we're hoping to get it abroad very, very soon. Yeah, I have a lot of people that I want to show this to. Oh, I know. Well, because here's the thing. You, you know, obviously, I assume that a lot of people listening to this sort of know the, about the virality of it. And the funniest thing, truly, is this is a movie I shot in my parents' backyard, right? <laughs> and it blew up so quickly that the standard logic for home video releases for a movie that stars no one <laughs> and like d like was made for what what is an astonishingly micro budget the standard logic was to, we'll release it on dvd and you know after a year we'll see what it does and then we'll try and sell to foreign territories we'll like renegotiate those deals that's what you do that's like just standard practice for direct-to-video stuff what happened was it blew up so quickly so fast that we've run into a huge problem with piracy because <laughs> we oh. can't get it to the territories quickly enough every time i look online there are torrents with you know fifteen thousand downloads Fuck. um there's so many re-uploads on YouTube. There is one. There's one copy of Velocipaster that is inexplicably subtitled in Arabic. Wow. And <laughs> that thing is the bane of my fucking existence, dude. It's like the Hydra. You cut one down and three pop up. <laughs> and but it is Shit. it is truly wild. But that is part of the reason why we haven't released abroad yet. Because like literally we are running into the same problem that happens with a movie like The Avengers. Like, that's why you release simultaneously worldwide to get in front of piracy. Yeah. And we are yeah. having that problem, Bizarre. which is insane. I mean, like, look, I, I am so overwhelmed by, by, by the response to it, of course. Not in my wild... I, I always knew there was going to be an audience for it, but not in my wildest fucking dreams did I think <laughs> the Velocipaster was going to be the movie <laughs> that launched my career. But here we are. It's and it's wild. This has turned out to be because I, I I didn't know that this was in the offing. No one did. Um, yeah. Yourselves, but um, this has actually turned out to be pretty good timing because big news this week. Yeah, yeah. We we got we were announced this morning what the title of the sequel is and that we are in fact going for two more movies. The plan is to make a three film. You know what do you call it? Like like different kind of films in the same tone and universe kind of deal. And so the next one is, the logline is, in the 1880s, a psychic lesbian school teacher teams up with the world's greatest adventurer to find her girlfriend and fight Dracula and his golden army of the undead. Because this movie is called Outback Dracula. It takes place yes. in Australia. Wow. Yes. <laughs> and we are hopefully going to Australia to shoot. Honestly, I have to worry about visa shit with that. Uh, America's doing real well with COVID right now. So, And I, I just yeah, know that fuck. everybody around the world knows exactly how well we're doing with COVID. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of hoping that um the famously thorny Australian Immigration Board uh, will grant me a fucking visa. But yeah. um, I mean, we're going to make this movie no matter matter what so yeah that is the next film it's called outback dracula and i'm very excited brandon where can people catch up with you on social media i am at brendan steer on everything just b-r-e-n-d-a-n-s-t-e-e-r-e -E -E -E. if they like the velocipaster they can follow it at the velocipaster as one word because uh huh. turns out that at velocipaster is an actual priest 
<laughs> so uh, you can no also way. tweet at him. He seems like a very nice gentleman. <laughs> but uh, if you want to talk about the film, it's at the Velocipast. Brendan, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This has been a blast. Yeah, this has been great. Thank you. Of, of course, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for finally giving me not only a platform to talk about Orphan, but to talk about Fifty Shades Darker. <laughs> and, and speed racer so it truly has been it, it's been wonderful thank you you know it doesn't feel like that long ago since i've seen orphan but i feel like i'm seeing it with new eyes now see it's that thing again because you actually had to pay attention to it. you had to watch it in forensic detail yeah exactly i think it does make a world of difference big thank you of course to the velocipaster director Brendan <laughs> steer for joining us that was a really good time an amazing chat an amazing chat lovely guy as well and you must if you get the chance do it fucking legally though please watch velocipaster yeah do it legally but yeah you've got to check that film out when the chance arises because it is an absolute riot however we're done we are yeah if you're listening to this on the day that the episode comes out, the Friday, then you'll know that we're also busy tonight. We are honoured to be part of the Soho Horror Festival Pride Edition tonight as we host, alongside festival organiser and director Mitch Harrod, a Zoom commentary screening of Hellbent with Paul Etheridge. Yeah, I can't wait for this. Uh, I love Hellbent. I love Paul. Uh, I love Mitch Harrod. I like you. You've got at least okay feelings about every part of this. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I don't see what can possibly go wrong, uh, barring no, technical no. difficulties. Yeah, it's going to be great. Hopefully you can join us for that. But like I say, feeling that we are back on Monday with Minisode 108. We do all the usual stuff on there. Mitch's pitches, what I've been watching, 90 side quests, feedback, all that stuff and more. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us, you have, of course, got many avenues to do that. Facebook and Instagram are Strong Language Violent Scenes. You can tweet us as well at Strong Violent PC. And you can email Scenes at gmail.com and interact with other listeners on the Facebook group, The Chud Locker. Yep, and you can check out our website, strongviolentpod.com, where you can find just about everything you could ever possibly need to know about us. And also, why not pop over and visit our Patreon page? We've got some amazing tiers there, some cool stuff to give away. Massive thanks to everyone who's already pledged. We love you, and we will continue to do what we're doing regardless. Absolutely. Of course. Of course. Yeah, like I say, no obligation, but if you are looking for a little bit more Andy and Mitch for your buck, then uh, there's some avenues for that now. Yes, yeah, and like I say, every little bit really helps us kind of elevate the show, elevate the production of the show, and really just make the show kind of self-sustaining. Yeah, which we're kind of on the way to doing just now, and it's all because of you guys, so we really do appreciate that a lot. We really do. We're back Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, it is better to die a hero than live as food in a world of chuds. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.